Hey, hey, welcome back. This is the final episode, season one of Falling Out. It's part three of my interview with Jen Kiaba. Now, when I started this project, I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't know if there were going to be seasons. I had no idea how long it was going to be. I had no idea what the arc of it was going to be. But I had a feeling that I would know when I hit the right places to take a pause. And this is where I think it's right to take a pause. But before I get to the bulk of the episode, I want to address a few points up front. Number one, I recently had the pleasure of appearing on the Ares Meyer podcast. You may remember Ares as one of the early guests on this show. The conversation with him gave me an opportunity to express what brought me to the point of starting this project and I think may give the listeners of this a bit more context and clarity as to that story. And it was honestly just a really funny, fun conversation, regardless of the kind of horrendous subject matter. So uh, for anyone who's interested in a bit bit more context here, look up the Ares Myers podcast. It's episode 21 um, that just came out in the last few days. A few other points as we come to the close of this season. Number one, I want to reiterate that season one is a starting point. There will be subsequent seasons, and they will be coming soon. But I need to take a break. And in the meantime, number one, I want to say thank you for everyone who has contributed to the show. I've had amazing conversations with amazing guests, and people have really opened themselves and made themselves vulnerable in some pretty pretty brave and courageous ways, and I really commend everyone. Number two, I want to say thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. That support means a lot to me and means that I can keep working on this project and also for a bit of context for every hour of content that you would hear as a listener i would say there's probably at least five hours of time invested into that single hour that you listen to in terms of my time prepping interviewing editing listening re-listening all that sort of stuff and with that in mind number two i want to reach out and ask for further support, especially as I go into this second season. Um, And specifically, I'm excited to say that season two is going to go further and and reach beyond what's been done in season one. The format's going to change in some places. Part of that is going to be doing group episodes. Part of that is going to be doing collaborative episodes with some faces that you will be familiar with if you've listened to season one and all of that is going to require a greater investment in technology on my part and on the part of this show so if you'd like to support any of that then please consider becoming a patreon subscriber during this break period i am also going to be reaching out to my patreon subscribers directly and asking them for feedback and direction on what they would like to see out of the show so if you want to be part of that then that's where you do it It's priced at about five bucks a month. I think that's pretty reasonable. I certainly hope so. Beyond that method of support, I'm really happy to say that right now, if you go to fallingoutpod.com, we just launched t-shirts. They look fucking awesome, and 50% of the proceeds there will be split directly with the artist Teddy Hose. That's live right now. In the near future, we are also going to be launching artwork based on... Some of the themes and topics that have been discussed with some of the the guests in the past. I I can't give you too many details, but there's going to be some really awesome stuff coming soon. So just keep your eye on fallingoutpod.com. If you see anything that you like and you purchase it, you'll be directly contributing to this show. Um, Beyond that, if you could subscribe on whatever platform that makes a big difference. Leaving ratings and reviews also also makes a big difference as well. I realize you've probably heard that on every other podcast that you've ever listened to, but to give you a bit of context on to e- even just what a, a like or a subscribe can do for a show like this, um, that all goes into the algorithms, uh, and, and I can see on my side how those little changes, even just a few extra likes here or there, can materially impact the ratings of this show and the visibility in the various algorithms. By the way, as a result of certainly a number of people doing whatever they're doing and the algos, uh, in the last week, this show has actually 
made it onto the U.S. podcast charts on Apple. Um, number 274 in the category of personal journals. Uh, honestly, the U.S. is the biggest market for podcasts by far, so I will take that as a flying success, quite frankly. Um, but those little things matter, so that's why I'm asking for it. And finally, kind of circling back to season two and where this is all going to go, I recently heard a great analogy. I got some great feedback about how people are viewing this project, and, and someone used the, the analogy that all of us who grew up in cults are carrying one piece of a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. And by listening to these stories, they're able to, to piece together some of the the contours of the puzzle that to understand where they came from and understand what happened to them when they were growing up. And I think that's a great analogy. And I've been thinking about that a lot and specifically within the context of cults who specifically try to use secrecy and shame to control people. Um, there are some huge black holes in our memories and it's just wonderful to hear that people are using this forum as a way to, to piece together some of the components of their own story. And I'm delighted to hear that it's been used in that way. But as I think about where this is going, as I think about season two, I want to expand that analogy because I think it's a good way to think about it. So if season one is about putting together the puzzle pieces for kids who grew up in the Moonies, season two is about looking at adjacent puzzles on the same table. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's expanding the lens, going out further, and talking to people in other places who can shed light on the issues that people who grew up in cults face. Um, I can't go into any more detail than that right now, but um, it's going to zoom out and look at those other pieces of the, the, the Mooney cinematic universe, effectively, is kind of where I'm going with this. And there's always going to be the lens of what matters to kids who grew up in, in that cult and other cults, but it's going to zoom out and look at some other places, some actually very unlikely places that intersect with that theme. And and personally, I think just in some of the conversations I've had there recently, more puzzle pieces are coming to light from places that I never thought they would. I'll leave it at that. And with that in mind, I hope you stick around for season two, which I am aiming to launch at 6 p.m., on the 6th of June, 666, motherfuckers. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get there, but that's what I'm shooting for. I think I've talked enough. Thank you, everyone, for coming this far with me. Here it is. Drink a glass of wine, and please prepare yourself for part three with Jen Kiaba. I think you'll know why this was the place to take a break by the time you finish listening to this. Take care, folks. And again, I'm 17, so I'm underage, and I was living in a van, fundraising 10, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, being brought across state lines. So that is yeah. the definition of labor trafficking. Mm. Um, yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, so I was struggling in general. I hated it. Uh, there was a lot of abuse that you dealt with, obviously sleeping in a van, um, the, the physical just strain of it, but also just the fact that like I was being sent into bars to fundraise. I was being sent into really unsafe neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. So can you actually, can you talk a little bit about this? Like, you know, what exactly were you doing when it came to, when it came to fundraising? So I had a backpack full of product. It was mostly cheap jewelry. It was okay. hematite necklaces and abalone seashell necklaces and I had a board uh, displaying all of the various samples and then okay. all of the product was in my backpack okay. so what would happen is we would wake up like 5 30 in the morning in order to do a 6 a.m hundake in the van um, and then we would maybe have fast food for breakfast some team and captains was this were little... this was after sleeping in the van this was after sleeping in the van yeah okay. we slept in the how, van how many the people time. how many people in a van Oh God, I don't know, probably five. So I was in a okay. team full of sisters, so okay. girls. So uh, I think it was, there were 
three girls that eventually slept on a platform in the back. So if you okay. imagine a Ford Econoline van, yeah. I think it was the last row of seats had been taken out so that we could put our luggage. Cause we had like a, you know, small duffel bags full of clothes, you know, t-shirts yeah. and pants uh, that would be stored there. But when we left UTF, so we had the kickoff workshop at the Unification of Theological Seminary. Uh, and then we left to go out on the road. Uh, my team was, I think it was five sisters and then a male team captain who was Japanese and didn't speak very good English. Mm-hmm. Very nice man, though, I will say They're that. all the, I, I, uh, why, why do they always do that? There are all these Japanese fundraising captains. Do you know the, the history there? Or like, I don't, or, but yeah. I would assume that the way that the Japanese were abused with this, you know, you are uh, Satan, you are the enemy yeah. for what you did to the Korean yeah. people. And then the codon that they had to do where they had to like, not only were you supposed to sort of tithe in the Unification Church, but codon, I think, was like this additional $500 penance that they had to pay yeah. every month. Yeah. Um, and I think that Japan in general is sort of the cash cow for the Unification yeah. Church. So it's probably a very rich place to draw from in terms of people who are expert fundraisers. Mm. Um, which, yeah. you know, I, I say that it's not really a compliment. It's like these are people who have been so abused yeah. that can be put into these leadership positions yeah. on something like STF. But um, I think for the first several weeks, we had um, girls sleeping on the bench seats. I slept on the floor of the van. So, like under the under, under the, the benches. So, yes, I was sleeping under the benches. Oh. So sometimes, like the girl on top of me, her sleeping bag would like slide over to cover the space, and so I'd be like encased. And because it was summertime the team captain would sometimes turn on the van in the middle of the night to run the AC. And so the exhaust pipes would heat up the Uh, floor of the van where I was sleeping. And so it was just like, I'd be encased in nylon with like the the hot (sighs) exhaust pipes under me. Um, And we made Uh, it down to North Carolina where a member built a platform. So it was this wooden platform where three of the shorter girls could sleep next to each other. Okay. And then I graduated from the floor to a bench seat because I was taller. Okay. Oh, man. Okay. So there are six of you living in this van. There's at least six of us living in the van. Yeah. Waking up at, so you waking up at and, six in the morning reading, and, and let's reading also, some words yeah sorry yeah ahead. well let's also say like um sometimes we get kicked out of the parking lots we were sleeping in too yeah. you can't sleep in in all parking lots in the united states yeah. so sometimes we'd have to find another place to sleep yeah so it was not always like a full what six seven hours of sleep yeah. every night but yes waking yeah. up 5 30 um maybe going to a truck stop to like brush your teeth or going to mcdonald's to brush your teeth and then having hundake maybe in the parking lot at 6 a.m and praying and then you know sometimes you'd have breakfast first sometimes you would do a fundraising run and a fundraising uh. run was you being dropped off either by yourself or with a partner yeah. to canvas either a strip mall an industrial park or a neighborhood i did all of them yeah uh i fundraised by myself sometimes although Uh. originally there would be like a second year who would be training you along the way um my second year teammate told me to say that i was raising money for africa for orphanages in africa and i was like that's lying i'm not gonna say that Like that was really the first time that somebody had been, no, it's not the first time. Let me back up. When I was 15, um, I saw heavenly deception at work where uh, people were making holy candy. Did you ever experience? I remember the holy candy. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Please explain. So my experience with holy candy in Arizona was showing up at the state leader's house and there was a bunch of people around the table uh, unwrapping Tootsie Rolls, taking a needle, dipping it into wine, piercing the Tootsie Rolls, and then closing them back up and putting them in a pile for us kids to hand out to people. And that would like bless them. Yeah. And I was like, isn't that like illegal? Yeah. And people were like, it's heavenly deception. It's okay. You know? Yeah. Oh God. That's yeah. horrible. Um, yeah. No, I want to, I want to dive into this STF experience because uh-huh. I, I think it's so fascinating. I got, I got criticized by um, my, my handler, if you will, my second year handler, because I would not say, I was afraid to say that I was with the Unification Church. I had promised myself that if anybody asked, 
I would not lie to them. Okay. So my spiel was, hi, I'm Jenny. I'm raising money for my church. I'm selling abalone seashell and hematite necklaces. They're, you know, one for 15, two for 20. Would you like to help? And I learned to say that in English mm. and Spanish. I mean, I knew how to say it in English, mm. but I learned how to say it in Spanish too. Yeah. And I did very well with the Spanish speakers um, because, you know, they heard the church and I think mm-hmm. they assumed I meant like the Catholic church because yeah. many of them uh, come from Catholicism yeah. and I didn't have the language to be like, no, not Catholicism <laughs> actually. Um, so it was still deception. I want to be yeah. clear. I was not, uh, to me, um, not telling the full truth was better than outright lying. And I got criticized for it. Yeah. And I was a I'll terrible fundraiser. The most that I ever made was $400. Okay usually so we had to every morning report what our goal was to our team captain in front of uh, everybody and at night we would count all our money we would fold it in half lengthwise fold it in half the other way and then fold it diagonally and that was offering to spirit world right it just fucking makes it easier for somebody to count the money okay because it like it it bends the bills so they don't stick together but we were told that that's the offering to spirit world and then we had to tell everybody how much we made and what our goal was so that people could hear if we had fallen short or not okay and if we had fallen short we were told to up our goal so that we could crush Mm. out and break through and stuff to crush out just means like Mm. make a shit ton of money right yeah um that was just like our weird weird slang Um, So I wasn't a very good fundraiser, you know, usually I averaged like maybe $200 a day, but as Aries mentioned, some of the cute, especially like cute Asian girls were making like $1,000 a day. Whoa, man. And so this money would get, go ahead. uh, Even, even then, I mean, so I'm just going to pull my calculator here. (laughs) So let's say you're making $200 a day, Mm -hmm. working how many days a week? Seven. Unless we gathered for a workshop which occasionally we did. So, I mean, and you do that for a year, that equals touch under $73,000. And so I did uh, not make it a full year. I was okay. not a good cash cow. Okay, okay. Um, but that shows, I mean, like you're, you're saying you're like a, a, a pretty mediocre performer. I was terrible, yeah, uh, but I was yeah, still, but you're I making could have pulled 70, in. You know, 75 grand a year. But there was still untaxed, pressure to do you know, better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was, there was pressure to compete at that, you know, $300,000 a year level for sure. Wow. And, you know, for the kids whose parents had been superstar fundraisers back in the mobile fundraising team yeah. days. So just yeah. for a little history lesson, people who joined the church didn't know what they were joining. For the most part, they yeah. came filtered in through a front group that had no yeah. association supposedly with the unification yeah. church. Yeah, just like every single front group we've just talked about. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, like the Creative Community Project was the group in Berkeley that uh, would get people in through the door and then sent up to Boonville for indoctrination workshops. Yeah. Um, so what would happen is once a person was indoctrinated, they were sent out on mobile fundraising team, which is essentially the, the primogenitor of STF. Yeah. Um, and so that's why they sent us kids on it because it was a way to break down our parents. And so yeah. the parents that had been great fundraisers, it was like considered to be in the blood of the children. <laughs> and so there was this pressure for these kids whose parents had been good fundraisers to fundraise really well too. Yeah. Luckily, neither of my parents were very good fundraisers. So I didn't have okay, that pressure. Okay, so you didn't have that pressure, yeah. But there was still the general pressure of performing. Um, and so... I, my body was starting to break down really quickly because I had unmedicated amoebic dysentery. I was living off of fast food, sleeping in a van, working, you know, 16 hour days, seven days a week. Yeah. Um, And then I think it was September. So if we started in July or like early August, just by September, I was in North Carolina and I was dropped off at a strip mall and I went into this barber shop. And I started my spiel and this guy stops me and he goes, hold up. Are you with the Moonies? <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, I promised I wouldn't say no. You know, uh, and kids like I had been, I had uh, had people threaten to call the police on me. Kids yeah. had been thrown in jail. You know, we had Whoa. again, no way of communicating with our team captains. We didn't yeah. have like radios or anything at this point. Uh, um, and so I'm like, okay, I'm about to get arrested here. This is awesome. 
um, because there was obviously a no soliciting sign on the door. Right. Yeah. So I tell him yes, because I figured the evil spirit world would invade if I lied. Right. And he just looks at me and he goes, I am so sorry for your loss. And I was like, what, oh, you know, and, and I had had people be very compassionate with me. And I'd also dealt with like the other end of the spectrum. Like I had people who legit knew I was in a cult who was like trying yeah. to unbrainwash me being like, yeah. do you know, Reverend Moon manufactures weapons? Do you need yeah. a place to stay? Are you yeah. okay? Kind of yeah. thing. Um, and, but it was still surprising to have somebody be compassionate because I'd been screamed at and threatened too. I'd been kicked out of bars. Um, but I didn't know what he was talking about and he could tell. So he turned on the news and we were in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there's this news report that the body of a young girl had been found in an apartment complex unclothed. And, you know, she was part of the unification church and I lost my shit. I was like, Oh my God, thank you. And I left and I just started running and I ran to like the nearest McDonald's. And I was, I was like freaking out. Like somebody's about to kill me. Right. Because we had been taught that anytime we were working for the Providence or for true parents, we would be protected. Yeah. And suddenly I've heard that not only is that not true, but that a girl that I knew had been raped and killed doing this work. So I run into the, this McDonald's and I'm like sobbing and I'm like, can I speak to your manager, please? And he comes up to me like, oh my God, what's going on? And I just like, I broke down. I'm like, my friend has been raped and killed and I need to call my mom. Wow. <laughs> and so he hands me this, this cordless phone and I'm sobbing and I'm telling my parents. Jesus. And I think they were as shocked as I was. Fuck. Yeah. Because God I don't damn. think that they believed that something like this could happen either. And, uh, you know, it's funny because like when I had been um, fundraising in Baltimore, for example, I had a customer being like, honey, you shouldn't be out here by yourself. This is not a safe area. Yeah. Right. And I had been kind of like, oh, whatever, God's going to protect me. Um, yeah. I, I really had no idea. I was so naive. And so. Yeah. But the, I, I mean, the, the church encourages that. They, they, they encourage that. It's not your <clears throat> yeah. fault. It's, it's their fault. It's, well, yeah. not only that, but we were taught that, you know, by having somebody purchase, it's not just that we're making money, right? That's not an incentive. What we were taught was that if somebody buys something from you, that is setting a foundation upon which God can claim this person. Yeah. And so it's almost like witnessing to the person. It wasn't quite like giving them holy wine necessarily, but it was, God was claiming them. It was like you were doing them a favor. Yeah. And so with me, it was like, if somebody didn't even want to buy, I would be desperate to be like, would you at least give me a dime? Like, please give Mm -hmm. me some monetary currency so that I can save you. Right. And I actually got into a fight with one of my teammates because she's like, you're spending too much time talking to people. And I was like, wait, what? And she's like, you need to move on. You need to get the money, basically. Mm. She's like, it doesn't matter what you say. It's how you say it. You get the money. And I was like, excuse me. If we're here out saving people, then the time that I spend with this person means that I could be setting a foundation for some other team to come through later and witness to this person and break through. Like, Mm. what the fuck do you mean? I just got to get the money. So I was, I was brainwashed. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, so this is the first time that I realized that like what we're doing is unsafe. So uh, I couldn't finish fundraising. I knew that I should finish my run and I couldn't. I was just freaking out. Mm. Um, And I wanted to call other people. Like the manager of this McDonald's was so nice. He like gave me free food and everything. He's like, is there anything else I can do? (laughs) You know, but Um, I wanted to call other people. I wanted to call this guy friend that I was like on STF for, right? Because I was trying to like- Yeah, this is like your preconditions. Yes, exactly. Um, But I had already left the McDonald's and I didn't want to use my fundraising money because that was considered public money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to even use 35 cents to make a call is misuse of public money. And that is a huge sin. Yeah. So I didn't. And I just sat at my pickup location, like shaking until my team captain picked me up. And I told him what I had found out. And nobody believed me because they too were like, that can't happen. They, oh, and they didn't know yet. No, they didn't know yet. We were the only other team in North Carolina at the time. As far as I know, we were all pretty spread out. Um, So they didn't know. 
Um, and, you know, it, it, we come to find that this poor girl uh, had been lured into an empty apartment and then, you know, strangled, raped and killed. And I don't know, you know, what order that happened, but she also had been brainwashed to believe that she should in some way witness to this young man, which made her vulnerable, yeah. you know, um, if, if she had just been like, you know, I'm just here to get the money and go then she might've just been like, whatever, I'm just going to go. But she, she had been taught to invest in this person because she was going to be able to somehow give him something, some sort of salvation. And, and I think, I mean, I don't know exactly what they taught, what they taught you, but my understanding is that like, if someone, if someone showed you any, any interest, like that was like, that was like an opportunity for you to engage them. And if they were like, Oh, this is really interesting. Why don't like, why don't you come in and have a cup of tea or something like that? Like that would, that was considered like, Oh, maybe I can then convert this person. You know, I, I, the cup of tea is very English (laughs) thing, but do you know what I mean? Like, Like, I I felt like that was encouraged. I feel like that might be one of those inconsistencies that you've pointed out in previous episodes. My mother taught me that you don't cross the threshold it was sort of like you know a vampire can't come in unless you invite him in kind of okay like if you cross the threshold then you are potentially entering satan's domain oh interesting but she must have been taught otherwise yeah again you know my mother um she had told me she used to say things to me like trust your gut jenny you know Mm. and your central figure doesn't always know best and things like that so it may have been that my mom's slightly unorthodox, but still very fundamentalist Mooney belief system was different than what other people got. So like when people invited me in, I knew not to go in. Um, Okay. Interesting. But again, I don't think that that was the case across the board. I don't think it was the kind of thing where they said at workshops, like don't go into somebody's house. So wait, is it, you think they did say that or they didn't? I I don't know if they did. I don't recall. Yeah. I really don't. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. You would, okay. you would hope that they did. But again, obviously the training that this young girl had been given, even if she was told not to go into the house, the saving the person superseded the not going into the house. Yeah. And again, you know, she was lured into an empty apartment. I don't know what lured necessarily uh, means. Was she strangled and dragged in? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but she was, she was fundraising in a very unsafe apartment complex. So, I told my team captain, my team members didn't believe me. They're like, how could this happen? Right. Because again, they had been taught that true parents and heavenly spirit world would protect us. Um, And so my team captain spent like dinner in the Wendy's parking lot, pacing on his cell phone, calling headquarters. Can we just, can we just, I just want to pause there for a second. Yeah. I've, this is something that I've struggled with a lot or something that, that, that I've, that I've, that I've grabbed, I've, I've wrestled with a lot is how to deal with saying this person's name on this show. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, I want to be respectful to her and to, you know, to yeah. her family. Yeah. But I also want to make the point, she has a name. So I'm going to say yes. her name and we're going to talk about it. I will yeah. take it out at the end. At the end, um, If I ever get permission from her family to put it back in, then I'll put it yeah. back in. But okay. I'm going to say her name now. Her name was... And those fuckers fucking killed her they fucking killed her they did fuck you fucking fucks and so afterwards once this information went up to headquarters they called like a big workshop in dc and it was basically damage control yeah and so they they had her parents give this big speech about how everybody should look at her passing as this heavenly sacrifice and this pure sacrifice. And we had to like write these songs and we had to be happy. We had to be happy that she died. We were not allowed to grieve her death. But at the same time, what was also happening was that people were whispering that she was struggling in her blessing. How else could Satan have invaded? Trying to undercut. Yeah. And so it was this, it was like publicly we were upholding her. They gave her a national level Sunghua, which the Sunghua 
is the funeral service that happens in the Unification Church and everybody wears white. A national level Sunghua basically canonizes a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously we don't have saints in the Unification Church, but it was a huge deal. It was mm-hmm. all this pomp and circumstance. And I yeah. think it was like this three-day workshop where they were telling parents, like, don't take your kids off of STF. You know, Satan will be able to invade and claim victory and her sacrifice. You know, they they talked about it as though this was like something that she had chosen. Her sacrifice will be in vain. Um, and parents still, some of them did take their children away. And so those parents and those kids were talked about as failures. Yeah. Um, Fucking. And so it was, it was incredibly tragic and it was just such incredible cognitive dissonance that was going on um, to, on one hand, basically canonize somebody, talk about her like a saint who had sacrificed her life for God, but then also at the same time, like eviscerate her like that and say the only reason Mm. that she could have died is because she struggled and she failed. But that, that is the problem with the Unification Church theology. If you're telling these kids that you're going to be safe doing true parents work working for the providence for god and somebody dies then it's their fucking fault yeah and so i was actually given a choice my mother and my sister came down um but the choice was very much like my mom looking at me going like what do you want to do but looking at me like you're not going to leave are you you know Mm. and again my precondition here is that i want to set this foundation to be accepted in this blessing or to have my parents accept a matching because I'm unqualified otherwise. Um, And everybody's talking about all this, like you're gonna fail if you leave, right? And so I said, I wanted to stay even though I I didn't. And my sister was just like, why would you do something where you could get killed? Like my sister saw through the bullshit at such a young age. Yeah, she just looked at the situation and she's like, why would you do this to yourself? And of course I had not told her my reasons why. My mother knew the reasons why, but I I hadn't shared that with my sister. Um, And so as we were about to get sent back out on the road, uh, team, the team's leaders distributed mace and personal alarms to the sisters. Sisters were not allowed to go out at night unless they were in pairs, but the brothers didn't get anything as though somehow in uh, their they maleness, they were protected. Protected, Right. Um, yeah. And so to me, that was just terrible. But I also found out that at dinner that night, uh, this girl goes, you know, my mom gave me a purity knife and another girl goes, yeah, everybody's parents should have given them purity knives. And I was like, what the fuck is a purity knife? And that's when I learned that um, in unification church theology, women especially, but men too, were supposed to kill themselves before they were sexually assaulted. If you were in a position where you were going to get sexually assaulted or raped, the better thing to do was turn a weapon on yourself versus fall. Mm. And in the the list of lovely quotes that I sent you, there are a number of quotes from various speeches of Reverend Moons that speak to that. Yeah. And so I was left with this conundrum of like, if I was put in a position like And there are other first-generation fundraisers who were raped when they were doing yeah. that. Yeah. If I was in that situation, would I be brave enough to kill myself? Mm. And if I wasn't brave enough to kill myself, would my parents still accept me? Fuck, man. Yeah. So I stayed on STF until oh. the amoebic dysentery was oh. so bad that I couldn't be out on the road anymore. And my, uh, I, I finally admitted to my captain, like, I can't do this. And he got permission from headquarters to take me to a clinic where the doctor told me that if you don't go home, you're going to be in the hospital. And so, so your team leader had to call to get permission to bring you to a doctor because it was going to cost money. Yeah. Yeah. If you go to an emergency clinic nowadays, it's like $250. I don't know how much it was then, but you know, yeah, he had to get permission to use that. It was public money. So he had to get permission. Um, And my team treated me like I was a failure because I was too weak to go out and fundraise. Mm -hmm. Like my captain let me stay in the van before he got permission. And I was definitely looked down on like, you know, what? In fact, uh, later somebody was like, I I saw somebody and they were like, why did you leave STF? Like what happened? And I was like, I was dealing with amoebic dysentery. And they're like, (laughs) wait, you left STF because you had diarrhea. That's funny. 
Oh my God. What the It was fuck? terrible. Jesus. Yeah. It was so shaming. Oh, um, yeah. And so I was sent home and my mother also did not take me to a doctor. At first she tried to treat the amoebic dysentery with um, grapefruit seed extract. <laughs> Which is the most disgusting, bitter shit. Like three drops of it would ruin an entire glass of orange juice. I could not keep it down. Um, And so eventually she brought up her spiritual daughter who uh, had gotten a medical degree in Guatemala. And this woman... So a spiritual daughter means your your mother recruited her into the church. Correct. Yes. Thank you for that clarification. Um, And so she was a practicing physician, but my medical records nowhere will show that I was treated for this because Mm. I was not taken to uh, any physician anywhere. Um, I was given antibiotics with, in a language I couldn't read. I didn't know what it said. Uh, And I was basically in bed for two weeks. I couldn't get up. I was so sick. Yeah. Um, And STF was going into something called competition. So competition is where you amped up the hours of fundraising to see who could fundraise the most, which team and which person. So you were doing 20 hours a day of fundraising. What the um, f- Yeah, right around the time that I am uh, And this taking- is right after you died. Yeah, yeah, yes. Oh my God, and they, they ramp it up. They ramped In it up. In the wake of that event, they wake it, they ramp it up. Yep, yep. <sighs> Um, and so, so a couple of things around that one is that, uh, I was freaking out because I knew that as soon as my two weeks of antibiotics was done, I needed to go back to STF Yeah. because otherwise I would have failed right on a number of levels. I would have failed the formula course and I would have failed my own condition to be matched to this person. Mm. Um, but I would also have to go back to, a competition level thing where I wasn't in any kind of shape to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. I felt like an athlete that had been sidelined that was not in any kind of competition shape um, because I could barely get out of bed. Like the antibiotics were so bad that I felt like I had like lead in my veins. I thought I was dying for a while and my parents wouldn't let me go back until I had gotten a number of tests that came back and said that I was negative for amoebic dysentery. Okay. And by then, um, I didn't want to go back. I had the worst, I had the worst PTSD about STF. Mm. Like the thought of it had me sobbing and shaking. Like, yeah, I, I couldn't handle it. Um, and the thing that made me decide not to go back was my grandfather sent me a letter. So again, I'm 17, just to preface this. He sends me a letter and he says, Jenny, you shouldn't be out trying to save the world. You should be out getting a job, saving money, because if anything happens to your mother, your father should not have custody of the children. Whoa. Jesus Christ. And so a couple of things around that. One is that my mother's health, because she had had um, Lyme disease multiple times that were untreated in the church while she was working. Yeah a witness or a fundraiser uh, her health was very bad over the years she thought that she might have ms um and lyme disease is a very difficult to diagnose yeah. disease as yeah. it is yeah um but doctors also treated her like she was uh, it was basically psychosomatic so she mm. was treated like a crazy woman yeah so she I know some never, friends with lyme i know it's like, yeah it's difficult. Yeah. really difficult um, and it was only when i was uh, 20 years old that she finally got a diagnosis when she got lyme disease again and they're like, this is probably why you had Bell's palsy. This is probably why you okay. had these early signs. Um, so there had always been this thread of my mother being sick when I was growing up. Um, and I had even told her, I think when I was eight years old, like, mom, you have to live until I'm 18 so I can take care of the kids. Because I knew at the time that my dad was not mentally healthy. But so for my grandfather to A, know what I was doing, I hadn't told him what I was doing. But he, my mother must have told him something. And to emphasize to me that I needed to be the responsible one to take care of my family, that was enough for me to decide not to go back to STF. But anybody that dropped out carried incredible shame for a long time because, again, we were treated like failures. Yeah. You know, we hadn't done the formula course, blah, blah, blah. It was the thing that if you wanted to be a good BC, you had to do. Um, so I, I failed my condition. I failed as a BC. And then the guy that I wanted to be matched to fell. 
Oh. So wow. yeah, so that's okay. sort of the sequence of events. Whoa. And so that's when I allowed my parents to match me. Okay. Uh, Can we actually I think um I think maybe we need we should save this for another time because yeah, it's getting sure. quite it's getting quite uh -huh. late over here. Yeah. Uh, I think we should we should probably save that story for another time. Um Do you have a but, good ending point for something? Well, what I want to do is I want to know I want to talk about the money. Yeah. I want to talk about what um all the if money we, all the money that you made and all the other money that the other people made what happened to it we honestly? don't know when we were asked so a number of people asked because it was a question right we yeah. paid tuition to be on stf how much was we tuition paid, i think it was like a thousand dollars um there was a monthly tuition at one point, and I can send you a link to the 2004 STF handbook, which actually shows like the monthly tuition, but Whoa. parents were okay. paying for their children to be fundraising seven days a week, and we were making money. So several people asked the question of where's yeah. the money going? Yeah. And we were told basically, how dare you ask a question like that? Do you know how much it costs to run a program like this? This money is getting reinvested back into this program that is working on your spiritual development so that you can learn about true fathers and God's suffering heart. How dare you? So we don't know where the money went, but, you know, if you read in the shadow of the moons where she talks about, um, like basically like taping money to herself yeah. to get across borders and things like yeah. that, I have no doubt that, you know, again, I think Aries mentioned that money was being yeah. funneled right up to the moons to either yeah. build houses or to get, you know, snorted as cocaine. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was, that's, that's what it was. It was yeah. to buy whatever luxury goods, like whatever lifestyle for that whole family. basically. Well, and I mean, so even um, on how well do you know your moon, somebody anonymously, anonymously posted about a, an audit that they had done for the church. I believe okay. it was the second generation. Okay. Um, and it talked about one of the speaking tours that the moons yeah. had done. Yeah. And so the moons, I think despite having a private plane, they flew first class everywhere. So if they were doing a fifty state speak or fifty yeah. state speaking tour, yeah, they were fly flying first class at a cost of like ten thousand dollars a ticket. Yeah. They were staying in the nicest hotels in like yeah. the nicest suites at like seven thousand yeah. dollars a night. Yeah. And then if like Mrs. Moon was doing a speaking tour, she would Moon Reverend Moon would listen to the entire speech via long distance call. And then give her notes afterwards. So we're talking about like $700, $900 phone bills every night. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's something that we could have been funding too. Yeah. All oh, around. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 All that, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You think about all these like uh, events that, that we had back in the day where they would like, you know, do a speech in whatever place and rent out a yeah. hotel. Like they're always like actually really nice hotels. Oh yeah. Uh, and they were like traveling around the country and around mm -hmm. the world. Um, yeah. And this is on top of the moons having uh, properties probably in every state. Yeah. You know, there I were actually, like opulent quarters set aside for them in centers. They had mansions all over the world. Yeah. Palaces. I, I actually, I actually think I, I kind of underplayed that in the intro to this series. I kind of mm. said like, like mansions all over the world, but no, it's like, it's like, it's like at least one mansion in every state of the U S yeah, I don't uh, know if it's in every like, state, but there's like North Garden, East Garden, West Garden, Morning Garden. Like there's yeah. there are mansions everywhere. Yeah, just in the United States. Yeah, exactly, alone. exactly. Yeah, I think I, I use the term multiple mansions. It's not like yeah. two mansions. It's like no, it's like it's, you know, like. Uh, so let's think about Westchester yeah, yeah. County, right? Yeah. Irvington and Terrytown are basically yeah. adjacent, right? Yeah. So it is walking-ish distance between East Garden, which I think is an 18-acre mansion compound, and Belvedere, yeah. which is a 25-acre mansion compound. Yeah. Who needs that many mansions? Yeah, why do you need that? Yeah, and and those are those are two. And then I know, I mean, I actually went to their, like, the Moon's house in Korea. They have, like, a big, oh, big really? place in Korea. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure they have multiple places in Korea. Um, uh, in the DC area and this was a thing they had these like houses where in in the DC area I remember there's just like this house where it was like well it, it was like was some church house no the upshire uh, house was like a church center that like church okay. members lived in yeah yeah uh, which was run down and nasty it was run yeah but it's, it's a beautiful property there's a place called Barnum, Barnum house as well which is a couple yeah. blocks, a couple mm -hmm. blocks over um 
but then somewhere in the Virginia suburbs, uh, there was this kind of like big, like kind of like suburban mansion. Um, and as far as I know, that was like just kind of there in case the Moon family ever came to the DC area. Uh, and there was like they had a caretaker or something that uh, sure, you know, sure. Uh, but they just it was there. And there there are places like this all over the country, basically. Right, right. And so just to underscore what what we were talking about, like where the members lived were usually beautiful buildings that had not had any maintenance yeah. at all. Yeah. And so they like even the DC church was this beautiful old Mormon temple that they had bought in the 70s, and it was totally crumbling on the inside yeah. there's just no upkeep yeah. um, most of the members if they didn't live in centers were living in substandard housing but even the centers themselves were yeah. substandard yeah i worked at 43rd street um which is this beautiful i think art deco facade building um in central manhattan and it's disgusting inside mm. it's so gross um <laughs> And, yeah. and that That's was something that I learned was that the moons lived in, in these beautiful mansions. Like I knelt in the fucking hallway to watch moon eat breakfast in his East garden mansion, where there's like a waterfall in his dining room. And we would like sit there and like, listen to the translator translate the conversation that he's having at breakfast in his mansion where like members are members don't have enough to eat members are living in substandard housing the church centers are falling apart because all the money is being funneled up yeah and my mom used to tell me that the money is going to the providence the money is going to fight satan the money is going to fund moon's lifestyle absolutely yeah yeah it was and now it's you know the family yeah and and uh, yeah that's where the money's gone and that's what died for yeah yeah okay and so the next year or that same year two of my friends were in car accidents in separate car accidents um my team leader would slap his arms at night trying to stay awake because we'd be driving so often with little sleep so one girl's van they were driving through a snowstorm it's a sleep deprived captain they went off the road they rolled multiple times luckily nobody died another time they barely, another team barely avoided a head-on collision. I think they like um, clipped the mirrors. Okay. But again, still, you know, I think it was somebody who was sleep deprived. Yeah. Yeah, Who was starting to go off the road. The year after I left, there was a collision and a young man died and another one was in a coma for a long time. None of this stopped STF. And as you mentioned in another episode, it has just mutated into gpa it's all over the world kids are still being subjected to a form of this yeah yeah and i want well that's i'm I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because i want people to know i want people to hear about it yeah uh and i want those fuckers to feel some shame for what they've done because they 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 goddamn should um and i mean i don't know if anything's gonna gonna change but i just i want to you know i just want to shine a light on this because it's fucking unacceptable unacceptable is not the right word to be honest it's Um, not and i I really hope that anybody who's still carrying that cognitive dissonance that was put upon us you know who feels like they failed because they left who feels like they couldn't make it like you're not a bad person so many of us carried shame for it um you know we were trafficked yeah and we were told that we should be happy to be there that it was an honor to be there and that's terrible nobody should carry that and nobody should die for it yeah yeah exactly and unfortunately people have people have uh is there anything else just on that nobody should carry that and no one should die for it what did this girl die for what were all those risks taken for with jen's life and with the lives of countless others What were they for? And what are they for right now? Because right now, as I'm recording this, on the 19th of April, the Generation Peace Academy, a Mooney Front group, is stating on their website that they are now sending kids back out fundraising in the midst of the pandemic. They say they're doing it in a COVID safe way. They don't say anything about 
a murder safe way or a rape safe way. So those risks are still being taken to this day. So I ask again, why are those risks being taken? They're being taken for mansions in every state of the U.S. and in every country of the world. It's for frivolous lawsuits against members who bled their lives out for this supposed church. It's for towers made of marble in Korea. It's for $20,000 monthly allowances for the kids of Reverend Moon. Yes, that's a fact that I have come across. And it's for them to afford the legal fees and the PR people to cover it up when they do the very things that they say their followers shouldn't be doing. That's what that money's for. That's what this girl died for. That's why my life was put at risk. That's why the lives of thousands of others were put at risk and immeasurable harm and trauma was inflicted upon them. It's for that. It's to enable these hypocrites with this armor of money to perpetuate the cycle of further abuse. If you're still in this fucking church, do you really think it's worth it? I want to thank each and every one of you for coming this far with me on this journey. As I've stated before, I didn't know where it was going to go or how it was going to end or where it was going to be chopped into pieces, but this is where I'm drawing a line under season one. This has been recorded by me, Elgin Strait. Produced by me, Elgin Strait. Editing by me. Music by me. That's me playing the guitar. That's me on the drum machine. I did everything here. And this is something that I can be proud of. Feels like after all that pressure that I was put under as a kid to go out and save the world and that everyone else was put under to go out and save the world, well, guess what? I'm coming back and I'm heeding the call and this is what I'm doing to do my part. Shedding the light on the insanity and the hypocrisy of the Unification Church and soon to be in season two other cults that are involved in the orbit of the UC and some of the ideas that the UC inhabits. Thank you again one and all and I hope to see you for season two. I'm out.